Lesson 37 in the study of Romans. We're in the middle of the 11th chapter. And Paul is about to finish his defense of the Jewish people. And now his focus is going to be rebuking the Romans and their behavior toward the Jewish people, particularly those who do not believe. The rebuke and the warning, of course, come in chapter 11, and then the problems are stated in chapters 12 through 15. So we'll start with uh, Romans 11, 11, and it says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Now, I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that Paul tells them that salvation has come to the nations to make Israel jealous. They'll be jealous on two accounts. First, because God told Israel that he was going to judge them measure for measure. God judging measure for measure is found all over Scripture. As an example, Yeshua says, if you don't forgive your brother, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Measure for measure. Well, he told Israel this in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 20. They made me jealous by what was no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. And so God's judgment is that he's going to take idol worshipers and turn them toward him and make Israel jealous. And how will Israel know that the nations have turned toward God? And how will they be made jealous? Well, he told them earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. And again, this is a judgment of God and another one where he's using measure for measure. You see, they, Israel, in worshiping, obeying God, were to make the nations envious. We find that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. It says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this is how you will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have gods near them the way the Lord, our God, is near us whenever we pray to him? And what, the other nation, and what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as a body of law, as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Israel was to, make the, uh, to take the righteous decrees and laws given to them by God And by obeying them, they would make the nations envious. They were to have the temple of God. God was going to be close to them. God was going to dwell there and answer their prayers when they called upon him. However, they didn't do that. Instead, they worshiped the gods of the nations. Who, as God says, were no gods at all. So God is going to take a people with no understanding... And he's going to give them his righteous decrees and laws to make 
Israel envious. He's going to be close to them. He's going to answer their prayers whenever they call, which will make Israel envious. Now, the way this is going to happen is amazing as well. And while it's stated several places in Scripture, it's part of the mystery of God that Paul is going to speak of. It's one of those things that after it happens, you say, oh, that's what that Scripture meant. It's like the words of Abraham on the way up the mountain to offer Isaac. And Isaac asked him, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. You don't really get the full ramification of that until Yeshua gives his life. Yeshua, the lamb of God. And then you say, as Paul would say at the end of this chapter, you'd say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. You're just amazed. Even though Israel will miss the Messiah, God is going to use part of the remnant of Israel to carry the good news to the nation. And then when Israel, who turned down the Messiah, sees the nations turning toward God, doing things required of Gentiles in the Torah, they will know that the kingdom of God is come. Zechariah told us this. Listen to what Zechariah tells us in chapter 8, verse 23. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take a firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Now, we've spoken of this verse many times. We teach it every year at the Passover Seder, Outreach Seder. It says, in those days, and anyone who spends any time in Scripture knows when that, you see that phrase, it means the end of days. And then it says, ten men from all languages and nations. And that kind of troubles us. We don't quite grab a hold of that because that phrase means little to us. Ten men from all languages and nations. How can there be ten men from all languages and nations when there's so many languages and so many nations? Many more nations. But to a well-studied Jew... He knows that 10 is the number of a congregation. 10 is the number it takes a minion to offer corporate prayer. So he knows it means a congregation of all languages and nations. And then it says they'll take hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe. And again, that doesn't mean little to that means so little to us Christians. And while we may understand that the one Jew is the Messiah, the hem of the robe means nothing to us. But to the Jew, it means something very specific because on the hem of the robe are the fringe given to remember the commands of God. You can find that in Numbers chapter 15. Let me tell you what this means. It's really simple. It means when you see men from every nation and every language taking the hold of the Torah because of the Messiah and obeying it through the leading of the Messiah, then understand that the end is near. And so Paul reason, Paul's reasoning is simple. When the Jewish people who rejected Yeshua as Messiah see the nations taking hold of the commands of God that were given to the Gentiles because of Messiah Yeshua, they'll take note They'll become envious, thinking this is the end of days. And they'll think that they're on the outside of what God is doing. And so Paul says, I make much of my ministry 
in hopes that I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Isaiah tells us the same thing. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem. In the last days, the mount of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, we have this phrase, the last days. And it says, at that time, all nations will stream to the temple of the Lord, saying, he will teach us his ways. In other words, they will come and they're going to learn Torah, to walk by the precepts of the Lord, specifically those commands that were for them. Not necessarily the commands that were for the Jews, but they're going to keep the requirements that were given to the Gentiles. And Paul's reasoning is that if he can go preach the good news of Messiah Yeshua to the Gentiles and they begin to walk in the ways of the Lord because of faith in Messiah Yeshua, then Israel will sit up, take note, and say, this was the Messiah. Look at the Gentiles turning to God because of Yeshua. And because of Messiah Yeshua, then they will see the word of the Lord going forth from Zion. And then they'll think the end is near. And those who believe in Messiah Yeshua are bringing this all about. So they'll think, what about me? I've missed what God is doing. And they'll turn to the Messiah. Isaiah speaks of this as well. In chapter 11 and verse 10, it says, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. And the nations will rally to him. And his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria and Lower Egypt and Upper upper Egypt, from Cush, Elam, and Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. See, there we go again. They say, in that day, the root of Jesse, who we should know as the Messiah, will stand as a sign, as a banner for the people, and the nations are going to rally to him. Then the Lord will reach out his hand again, and the Jewish people to reclaim that remnant. And he will raise a banner and gather the exiles. You see, it's stated in the Torah. It's stated in the prophets. But again, it's the mystery of God. And as in the case of the mysteries of God, you have to see them happen most times. And then you say, oh, that's what that scripture meant. Paul again reasons when the people see the nations of whom he is the apostle to, and of whom he is the one sent to preach Yeshua in the Gospels, when they see the nations rallying to Yeshua, they're going to have to recognize that Yeshua was the Messiah. And the Jewish people will realize that the end is near and rally to Yeshua, the Messiah, as well. And so Paul says, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. 
You know, Isaiah gets even more specific in chapter 49. He says this in verses 5 and 6. He says, Now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God is going to raise up the preserved ones in Israel who are the elect of God, the elect of Jacob. And they're going to take the good news out to the nations, to the ends of the earth, and the rest of God's chosen from Jacob will see and turn to Messiah as well. Remember last week, we spoke about a fly in the ointment, right? Well, here's the fly in the ointment. The Romans are not following the commands of God. They're not walking out the commands of God so as to show the Jewish people that they've grabbed a hold of the hem of the robe of one Jew. They're not treating the Jewish people in a way that's representative of one who's walking by the commands of God. So unless something changes... They will not provoke Israel to jealousy. And they never did. And we never have. Listen, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but there is no way that God will ever reject Israel as a whole. And let me tell you why. He's made too many promises to the Jewish people. He made promises to Abraham concerning the Jewish people, to Isaac, to Jacob. And if God can break those promises to the Jewish people, then his promises to you are easily broken as well. You see, that's not who God is. He's faithful to keep all of his promises. And if you're one of those who say Israel is not relevant any longer or that the church has replaced Israel, then you've slandered God in about the worst way you can. You've trampled on who he is. You've said he's not faithful. You've said he's not sovereign to have mercy on who he'll have mercy. And I've said this many times before. There is no way you can know the mercy of God and the salvation of God and not love the Jewish people. There's no way that you cannot cry out for the salvation of the Jewish people. And if for no other reason... Just as Paul is telling the Romans, when the Jewish people see the salvation of the nations, they will know the end is near. The salvation and the coming of Messiah is wrapped up in the salvation of the Jewish people. So you better be praying for it if you want to see Messiah return. Listen to verse 15. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. And so he concludes his defense with this. And we can take the phrase to mean that Israel will be brought back from the brink, or we can take this to mean that when Israel finally accepts the good news, it will literally bring about the resurrection and the return of Messiah. Well, that's the defense. Now the other shoe's going to drop. And Paul's going to take the gloves off now for the rest of chapter 11. He's going to rebuke the Romans for their arrogance, for their insensitivity. And then for the rest of the book of Romans, he's going to speak of what they're doing wrong, what they're doing to destroy the gospel and the plan of God. So verse 16, he says this. If the the first piece of dough is holy, 
the lump is also. And if the root is holy, then the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and part, became partaker of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. So what does Paul do? He uses the Torah command of the first fruits of the dough to show that Israel is holy to the Lord. The Torah command is from Numbers chapter 15. It reads this way. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where I bring you, then it shall be that when you eat of the, eat of the food of the land, that you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first fruits of your dough, you shall take a cake as an offering. As an offering from the threshing floor, you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give it to the Lord, an offering throughout your generations. And so when making your bread, your challah bread, the rabbis determine that you take a pinch about the size of an olive and you give it to the Lord, even today. They still do this. The Orthodox still do this. They take a pinch of that dough and they burn it. If you get a loaf of challah from a kosher bakery, it will state right on the wrapper, challah has been taken. Now, if you remember, when we studied the Feast of the First Fruits of the Barley Harvest, it was not until the first fruits were offered that you could eat the rest of the crop. It became kosher, so to speak. The first fruits made the rest of the harvest holy. Well, the same principle is here with the dough. The pinch of dough offered to the Lord makes the whole lump holy and fit to eat. Well, after showing this principle of taking the challah to make the rest of the dough holy, he uses the root in the same way, the root of the olive tree. Now look at this carefully because we're going to determine what he means by the root. But first... Notice that I underline the wild olive, branch of the wild olive, because I want you to see something that I alluded to last week. This is, what, this is the theme of the book of Galatians, that the Gentiles were not to become Jews, but they were to keep the precepts of Torah that were applied to the Gentiles. We can see it in Acts chapter 15. Each of those prohibitions that the apostles put on the Gentiles were taken from the book of Leviticus. Each of them said to the native-born and the alien among you. And I want you to note that Paul will speak of these Romans as a wild olive branches throughout the discourse. He doesn't insinuate that they become anything else. They are the nations grafted in among the Jewish people. They are to remain the Gentiles who follow the God of Israel. Yes, we're grafted in. Yes, we're fellow heirs but we're not to become Jews. As you can imagine, if the Gentiles all became Jews, Jewish, you'll destroy the plan of God just as surely as the Roman arrogance and disobedience destroys the plan of God because the good news has to go to the nations as well. What is the root here that he speaks of? What is the root of the olive tree? Well, there's been a whole lot of opinions on what is meant by the root. What is the root of the olive tree? Well, what is the root of the Jewish people? What is the root of those from the nations who are turning to God? Some say it's Torah. 
Hey, that's good. Certainly Torah is the foundational principles we should live by. Some say it's Messiah, and Messiah is good. He's the goal of the Torah. But the root that Paul's thinking of has to go back to Genesis and Abraham. Listen to what he says in verse 15 through 18 of chapter 22. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You see, for Paul, everything goes back to these promises made by God to Abraham. That's the root of it all. That God will bless Abraham's sons and daughters and bless the nations of the earth as well. All because Abraham believed God. The promise has to be the root because it includes Torah. It includes Messiah. It includes Israel. It includes the nation. It's through those promises that we stand here today. And if any part of the promise fails, hey, the whole promise fails. It's no good. He's already said this in chapter 4. Remember what he said in chapter 4. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that there may be grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. God, the God who gives life to the dead and calls all things that are not as though they were. It all goes back to Abraham who first believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness And the promises of God concerning Israel and the nations were given because of that faith. And if the root, which is Abraham's faith, being credited to him as righteousness is holy, then all who believe God are righteous and holy as well. Because Abraham believed he was set apart by God. And when you believe in Abraham's son and God's son, then you're set apart as well. If the root, Abraham's faith is holy, then all who believe as Abraham are his sons and are holy as well. Now listen to what he says in verse 20 of chapter 11. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by faith. If the root is faith and it's faith as Abraham our father, the father of us all had, And don't get me wrong, it it all goes back to Yeshua, but the root is faith in Yeshua. It's the nourishing sap, and when push comes to shove, that's what sustains you. It's your faith in Yeshua. So what determines if a branch is broken off from a tree? Why would a farmer break a branch off of a tree? If I were a grower of olives, what would make me cut off a branch from a tree? Well, it's easy. No olives, right? No fruit. That means that branch is taking the sap from the root, but it produces nothing. And a good farmer is not going to put up with that. What's he going to do? He's going to prune that branch. He's going to take it because it bears no fruit. You know, faith is a wonderful thing. 
But if faith produces no fruit, it's like a branch that a farmer grafts into an olive tree. He watches the branch to see if it produces fruit. And if not, he cuts it off again. See what Paul is saying? We can take this right back to the life of Abraham again. And James's commentary on that life. Listen to what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Put this into Paul's analogy and we could say, if a man is grafted in by faith and has no fruit, can such faith keep him from being cut off from the tree? No. Let's skip down to verse 20 of James chapter 2. and says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is dead? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. You're grafted into the olive tree by faith, but you remain in that olive tree by producing some fruit. And what is the fruit that he speaks of? Well, we covered it last week. For Paul, the fruit is the salvation of the Gentiles, which will come through Messiah Yeshua. For this reason, some of the branches were cut off. They were cut off because they did not believe, and that unbelief made them enemies of the gospel. So they were cut off. He says that later in, the, in chapter 11, verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Not only did they not believe, but they were actively keeping the gospel from going forth. Remember, we spoke about what makes you an enemy of the gospel. It's not that you don't believe. That just makes you stupid and foolish. What makes you an enemy of the gospel is that you go out and you fight against it. It's that you actively fight against God and God's desire to make the good news known to all men. And so natural branches were cut off because they did not produce fruit. And the fruit is, we read it, and through your offspring all nations of the earth will be blessed. Produce no fruit and you get cut off to make room for a branch that will produce fruit. Now the fruit of the nations, what was their fruit supposed to be? Well, it was supposed to, they were supposed to inspire the people, Jewish people to jealousy. We'll read it in chapter or verse 19 through 23. It says, Will you say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell. Severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Paul is saying, if the natural branches were cut off because there was no fruit, what makes you think you won't be cut off for your arrogance and your alienating the Jewish people? For Paul, what is the fruit of the nations 
what is the fruit that the nations were to produce? Well, they were to incite the Jewish people who did not believe to jealousy. But if they don't fulfill their role in the plan of God, if they're arrogant, if they alienate the Jewish people, then they're going to be cut off as well. Let's read again what he says. I want to just read it again. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Behold the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell. Severity, to, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. You notice something here? Notice what it says? Do not be conceited. That's the problem. That's the problem that will get them cut off. Thinking too highly of themselves. And what is the fruit of that conceit? Well, he's speaking of their faith and he says, it results in God's kindness to you. You're grafted in because of your faith in God's kindness to you. Now, after seeing that, that you're grafted in because of your faith, and that resulted in God's kindness to you, wouldn't it be natural to say, if you continue in that faith? Think about it. Wouldn't it be natural to say that? Of course. But what does he say? He says, provided you continue in God's kindness. He's making an entirely different point here. You see, kindness means that you go out of your way to show compassion to those God loves. What, was, what does Paul tell them in chapter 12? He's going to say, present yourselves as living sacrifices. In other words, set aside your wishes and your need. Set them aside for others. A sacrifice is a life given to cover transgressions of another. Yeshua gave his life as an offering. Paul is saying, set aside your life for the sake of others. He tells them to love one another. He tells them, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. He tells them, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then in chapter 13, he tells them to submit to the synagogue authorities. In chapter 14, he tells them, if your food makes your brother stumble, what does he say? If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. You know, we don't eat meat at our own eggs. Or at least we separate it from the dairy. And we don't, I, I don't do that because God said we can't eat turkey and cheese sandwich. But we present ourselves as living sacrifices so as not to offend a Jewish brother who might come through the doors of Sar Shalom. And would be offended by that. We set aside what we want for the sake of another. That's sacrifice. He'll tell him in chapter 14. One man considers one more day sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. You know, last week we kept the traditional day for Shavuot. Even though I know... And I know most of you are convinced that the correct day for Shavuot is the first day of the week. And so we kept both. 
And we did it to present ourselves as living sacrifices, sacrificing a day of the week so that if a Jewish person came through the door that day, he would hear us speak and keep the traditional day of Shavuot. The one that he's convinced is the correct day. And we'd be here to receive him. And I am, as Paul says, fully convinced in my mind that that is the right thing to do. You see, we, you see, we sometimes have to do something that's contrary to our nature for the sake of God's purposes. And that's what he's getting at to these Romans. It's our nature to follow Torah and operate within what we believe. And if we had done that last week, there would have been no one here that Wednesday of that week if a Jewish person would have come to the door. You see, I get tired of services. They wear me out. You know, my nature, my flesh would say, forget that traditional Shavuot. Right? It's just another day of hard, hard work. I can tell you, if we're up to my flesh, there would be cheeseburgers on the golden egg table. (laughs) My flesh says, to heck with what people think. You see, I love the meat dishes we used to have on the Oneg table. My nature is to say, bring on that spicy beef that Claudia used to make. (laughs) But dear ones, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about seeing God's purposes established, seeing Jew and non-Jew living together in harmony. It's about being a living sacrifice. The church has for too long done what is right in their own eyes without any regard for the Jewish people. And if our separating meat and dairy or if our worshiping God on the traditional day of Shavuot helps one first person find Messiah, then we in some very small measure can begin to correct the centuries of wrongdoing of the church and see God's purposes established. Listen, we prove from Scripture that it's God's plan. He said it would happen, and it will happen. We are going to incite the Jewish people to jealousy. Let it begin here at Sar Shalom, and let it be done with the joy of the Lord. Amen?